0: Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message.
1: I get to open the Bible today. Let me address our online um, congregation. Hi, guys. Uh, it's, it's so good to be in your living room right now or wherever you're watching this. I, I, I'm privileged actually, I mean that, um, to be able to open the Bible. When I open the Bible, I want a couple things to happen. I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that you're blessed and encouraged to continue waking up every day, responding to the gift of God's breath on your life by saying your next yes. I hope that's your experience there as well. Is here. So before we get to the scripture, um, I want to, I, I need about a five minute sort of uh, history lesson here. So there's a guy named Paul and he's on death row and he's writing letters. Stop, right? That's just a weird sentence right there. The question would be if I said, Hey, on my way here today, I went by and saw my friend on death row, your question would be, My goodness, what did he do, right? And why are we listening to a guy writing letters from prison and what's going on there? So a quick, brief, brief, brief History lesson. So there's this guy named Paul. He is the rabbi of rabbis. He's the Jew of Jews. He is like the, man, there's only three people in the whole Bible called rabbi. Paul, Jesus, Gamaliel. So he is up there, okay? And his credentials are not in question, but he has this radical encounter with Jesus. And this radical encounter with Jesus convinces him of something. That he should be more inclusive and less exclusive right that he had lived by 613 fences but jesus comes along the scene and instead of living by 613 fences jesus changed the question from who is worthy to who is thirsty from who were who's worth it to who wants it and paul starts living like that and he starts taking this message of jesus um into the gentile world and he he comes to to a conclusion You can't tell 30-year-old men that they have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the Jesus movement. That would be an anti-church growth thing. You imagine that? We're so glad you said yes to Jesus. We have a man behind this curtain with a small guillotine. And we got a small little surgical procedure that we're going to put you through. It just doesn't really work. And so... What he, what he sort of did was, not sort of, what he did was is he said, Jesus honors your thirst for God more than keeping all the rules. And so we're going, to, we're going that way. Well, this was really offensive uh, to, to some people in Jerusalem, right? Some, they were called the zealots. They were, it was really offensive. And so I, I would say be very careful of people. Who try to elevate themselves above your spiritual standing because they know more or they've accomplished more. Be very wary because the people who've accomplished the most, like Jesus and Paul, they never played that card, okay? So be very careful of things like that. So, this is what's going on on the religious side. But that doesn't explain why he's in prison. You're not going to prison for a theological disagreement unless you are. So, the other side of the story is there's a social political history story you gotta understand. In 120 years, but preceding and after Jesus, there was 24 different messiahs at least. 24 different people claiming to be the one anointed by God to set people free from the Roman oppression. There was Menahem, there was Simon Benguara, there was Simon Barcopa. As a matter of fact, Simon Barcopa successfully kicked Rome out of Jerusalem for five years and everybody thought he was the Messiah. So there was all these guys. And whenever they got caught by Rome, they got killed really, really, really bad, okay? They all got caught by Rome except this one guy. There was this one guy that no one knew his name and he got smart. Everybody got caught by Rome doing this ended up getting killed. So he simply called himself the Egyptian. And what he did is he hired 4,000 Sikari. The Sicarii, literally the throat cutters. They were assassins. And what they did is they fit in during the day, and then at night they came out dressed in all black, and they would cut people's throats, like high, high-ranking high priests, corrupt people, uh, political powers. And then what they would do is they'd leave them on the ground and put their little Zorro symbol next to them. So, that, so the next morning when the sun came up, people would find them. And since there was no such thing as CSI Jerusalem, it was like, well, okay, look, the Egyptian has killed another Person, and so he started a secret revolt of 4,000 secret assassins in the wilderness to try to be a resistance movement to the Roman occupation. Back to Paul. So Paul's preaching this stuff that's irritating people in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem, the, some of the leaders say, You got to come back. You got to come back to Jerusalem right now and give an account for your preaching. Because we've heard that everybody everywhere thinks that you're saying Moses doesn't matter, the temple doesn't matter, the law doesn't matter, circumcision doesn't matter, food doesn't matter, and we're irritated by this. This is irritating the people we're trying to deal with here. So Paul says, fine. So Paul, on his way back to Jerusalem, stops by Corinth and takes up a love offering for the people in Jerusalem because nothing sort of greases the wheels of, of irritation like a bit of money. So he shows up, goes by the place that has money, picks up some money and takes it to the church. Jerusalem and they meet this is all in Acts 15 you can read it later they they meet and they're like listen we've heard that you're teaching everybody everywhere that we don't matter this is irritating us now let me be clear we celebrate the fact that people are saying yes to Jesus wherever they're saying yes to Jesus but you can't be saying that we don't matter Paul totally plays the peacemaker and humble he doesn't argue he says what can I do to make peace And they said, show everybody here that you still care by going through a temple cleansing. So he says, fine. So he goes through a seven-day temple cleansing and then he comes out of it. When he comes out of the seven-day temple cleansing, because he had brought a Greek person into the temple, some of the zealous Jews thought he had defiled the temple and they sent a mob to beat him half to death. And so this mob comes in and they're beating him half to death. And of course, if a mob is beating someone to death, who do you call? You call the police. And the police in Jerusalem is who? The Roman soldiers. So the Roman soldiers turn up and there's this mob beating poor Paul to death. And who do they arrest? The mob? No. Paul. That makes no sense. Why would you arrest the guy being beaten instead of the mob of people doing the beating? Glad you asked. So Paul is being beaten. They arrest him, put him in two chains and take him back to the army barracks, the police station... To be interrogated. And so on his way there, it says that he was beaten so bad he could not even walk from the severity of the beating. So the chief of police begins to question him once he comes to and they start asking certain things. And this is where in Acts 21, we get a clue as to why they arrested him instead of the people doing the beating. This is Acts 21, if you could bring that first slide to me. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander... May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? Now watch what the police commander, the Roman soldier, asked him. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Aren't you that guy? Are you the guy that hired the 4,000? Are you the Egyptian? What happened here? Paul's theology irritated zealous people in Jerusalem and they couldn't get him out of their hair. So they got him back to Jerusalem and they tipped off the Romans that he's the Messiah that's been starting a revolt that you've been looking for. So they arrest him on this false premise. Paul knows what's coming. He's going to be crucified. So he plays a good card. He says, ah, "Uh uh uh, I'm Saul of Tarsus. I'm actually a Roman citizen. You can't do that without a proper trial." And so he ends up in front of a guy named Felix. And Felix, if you keep reading, I'm not going to look at it now, but Felix says, I don't find any reason to charge this guy. In other words, there's no evidence he's the Egyptian. But as a favor to the Jews in Jerusalem, he kept him in prison for two years, which is one sentence, but a long... That's two years of your life because of a false accusation and because of corruption. Felix gets replaced by a guy named Festus, highly unfortunate name. Festus turns up and he's like, what are you doing here? Paul knows that the corruption is not going to end. So he appeals to the highest court, Caesar in Rome. And so Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome... Waiting to appeal to Caesar. So he is definitely going to die because in that day, if you did not proclaim Caesar is Lord, you were absolutely going to die. So he's in jail in Rome and in prison in Rome, nobody feeds you. Your, Your friends, your family have to feed you. As far as we know, at the time of writing, the Philippian church was the only church that sent somebody to make sure Paul had food and blankets and things like this. So he's writing these letters from prison, knowing they're his last words. Now, if you understand that about Philippians, you've got to understand, this is one of the most inspiring people ever. Think about the sentences, from for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For in Christ, all things are possible. Hey, stand firm, because what might look like your destruction will actually be your salvation. Do all things without grumbling. what And disputing with one another. Are you kidding me? This guy is one of the most inspiring people imaginable. Now, it's in that context. We read this. This is Philippians chapter 1. Yes, and I will rejoice. Like, rejoice? He's being tortured every day under the authority of Nero. It's not really rejoice-worthy. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored with my body whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This morning, I talked about consecration. I tried to put imagery around the word holy and around the word consecrate, around the invitation of a loving consensual relationship around a wedding. If you missed it, watch it later. Tonight, I want to do the same thing, but from a different angle. I want to talk about personal consecration as a countenance of my deliverance. Now, if you're a linear learner, you already are lost because I did a whole lot of narrative there. So if you're a linear learner, I did this for you. Next slide. So here's what's going on in context. Paul's in prison in Rome and is seen as an enemy of the state due to one false accusation and one true one. The false accusation is that he started a a, a secret revolt. The true accusation is that he's claiming Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's true. The Philippians were the only church to reach out and send someone to help him feed and resource him. Paul's awaiting a trial that's absolutely going to bring execution. He is not going to escape the death penalty here unless he denies Christ and proclaims Caesar is Lord. Next slide. So Paul lived in a day where the world believed Caesar is Lord. The problem is they ruled this way with military might. So, so their evangelism strategy was they showed up in your town with a platoon of armed soldiers and you either converted or died. This was incredibly effective. Christians were social justice juggernauts who were standing against the empire and the lordship of Caesar. Okay, so you're caught up. So Paul says this will turn out for, through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. This will turn out. For my, here's a guy being tortured every day under the authority of a Caesar named Nero, and he's writing these people, going, "Your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance." Here's the problem: it didn't. Paul died under the authority of the Nero in a Roman-sponsored execution. So if Paul's being like prophetic, like, come on, folks, you pray hard enough, I'm going to get out of this. Hey, I have enough faith to get out. Hey, this will turn out for my... If that's what he means by that, he missed it. But what if he means something else? See, Paul was a rabbi. And rabbis had memorized the entire Old Testament up to that time. And when Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's actually quoting something from the Hebrew wisdom scriptures in a book called Job. Now let me summarize Job in 20 seconds. There's this guy named Job. He has a lot. He loses everything. And people are wondering why he's suffering so much. Here is the first 37 chapters of the book of Job. Job, it's something you did. No, it's not. Job, it's something you did. No, it's not. Job, it's something you did. No, it's not. Job, it has to be something you did. Even if You can't, you have to have done something to be suffering like this. No, it's not. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Until chapter 37 where God shows up because actually it's not something he did. Satan and I had a barbed bed on. Right? So it's, like, it's a whole thing. Right? So, so it's Job is something you did. No, it's not. Job is something you did. No, it's not. Job is something you did. And finally, in the middle of the story, Job barks up, and you can't blame him. He's the one suffering, and these Bible experts are surrounding him with their proof scriptures about why you would be only be suffering if you did something. And finally, Job barks up, and this is Job 13. Watch his response. Though he slay me, I'll hope in him. In other words, if God kills me, that's in God's pay grade, not mine. I will still trust God, but I'll argue my ways to his face. In other words, if God kills me, when I get to heaven, I'll look right. and say, look, you had your reasons. I still trust you, but it wasn't something I did. Watch the next sentence. This will be my deliverance, that the godless shall not come before him. So in Hebrew wisdom tradition... The phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, is not saying I have enough faith to get out of everything. It's, I have enough faith to trust God and keep my ways clean before God in the middle of that something. That great faith is often not evidenced by getting out of everything. Great faith is a commitment to clean hands, pure heart, and sweet taste in the middle of that something. Now, think about Philippians with that as the context, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus. This will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, I'm committing you to have clean heart, clean hands, pure heart, and sweet taste. Now think about the next sentence. That is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at, always, at all be ashamed. That no matter what happens here, Christ will be honored in my body. For to me to live is Christ, and to die, well, that'll be better. Right? This will turn out for my deliverance. You see this in another place in 1 Samuel 21. There's a guy named David. Just a quick review of that story. David kills Goliath. David gets very popular with everybody except the king. David becomes an enemy of King Saul. And if you're an enemy of King Saul, you're also an enemy of all of King Saul's friends. And this becomes problematic because Saul's friends, evidently, are everywhere. And David ends up running into a guy named Achish, the king of Gath, who happened to be a friend of Saul's. And he gets terrified because if Saul's looking to kill him, that guy would be looking to kill him. Here's 1 Samuel 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? Did did they not sing to one another and ram in dances? Saul struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. You can't blame him, right? Next slide. So he changed his behavior. That's the key phrase. ...before them and pretended to be insane in their hands... ...and made marks in the door of the gate and let spit run down his beard. It's a great survival technique. They're wondering if you're a royal, act like a maniac. Act insane, spit all over you, froth at the mouth... ...start scratching at the door, people will leave you alone. They'll think that man has lost it, right? Now what you find in this story... ...is that David is a bad, bad dude... Like lion, bring it on. Bear, come get you some. Giant Philistine warriors, no problem. David is Jack Bauer on speed. David is Liam Neeson in Taken on speed. Like David, David's a bad dude. But what you also find out that is as good as David is at fighting, he's equally as bad at hiding. Everywhere he goes, people know where he is, right? Like there's one time where it says he went to a cave to get away from the whole thing. And 400 people already knew he was there, including his family and was waiting on him. Which leads to this observation, bro, as good as you are at, at fighting, mate, when it comes to hiding, frankly, you suck, right? So he ends up in front of Akish, and he changes his behavior. Now there's a play on words there. Next slide. So, so the Hebrew word for he changed his behavior is... Tamal, which everywhere else is translated taste or flavor. It's a metaphor. We would use it today. Like, if I did something that wasn't wrong, but it was inappropriate for context, you might say, Shane, that's not wrong, but it surely is in poor taste. That's in bad taste. So David gets away from the situation, and he runs to a cave... And 400 people already know he's there. And if 400 people already know he's there, he knows that somebody from Saul's thing already knows he's there. And he's a bit in despair. Now, what do you do when you're running for your life and you go to the last place you know to go and everybody already knows you're there? What do you do? Well, evidently you write a poem, right? And so it just makes everything better. And so David sits down and writes a poem. How do I know that? Because we still have it. How do I know that? Because it's in the Bible. This is Psalm 34. This is the cave. This is the poem he wrote in the cave after he escaped Achish the king of Gath. Pay attention to the lines. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes his boast to the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from my fear. In other words, he didn't necessarily save me from the situation, but he took my fear of the thing away, which is equally as important. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. Their faces will not be ashamed. Keep going. Oh, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers Them, oh, taste and see that the Lord is oh, taste. This is a guy that changed his taste. You could easily say, you could easily say, hey, oh, oh, behave. Let the, even in great suffering, let the world see a behavior that evinces clean hands, pure hearts, and sweet taste. This will turn out. For my deliverance. The phrase this will turn out for my deliverance is a commitment from a first century rabbi to keep his hands clean, his heart pure, and his taste sweet in the middle of systemic torture under the government of Nero. Let's stop and let's think about that for a second. Have you allowed the thought to creep into your mind that man, Christians have never been more oppressed than right now? I had a Christian the other day with a straight face tell me I don't think the world's ever been worse than right now. Spanish flu, black death, Roman Empire, Tiglath-Pileser. Are you kidding me? No, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is a guy who's in prison because people he brought an offering to lied about him to the Roman Empire. And now the only way he's going to get out is to deny the lordship of Jesus and to proclaim Caesar's Lord. He knows he can't do that. So he says to the Philippian church, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Let's talk about what he's not saying. Next slide. He's not saying he'll get out of prison. He doesn't. He's not saying his suffering's going to end. It doesn't. He's not saying he's going to avoid death. He doesn't. He is saying that no matter how this turns out, my heart, my hands, and my taste will be clean. This is a beautiful thing. Let's put some more language around this. Next slide. Let's say, no matter how difficult this gets, I won't enter a way of thinking that I'll regret. No, no matter how this turns out, I'll keep my ways clean before God. No matter how big the stress gets, I'll stay focused on God and keep my life straight. No matter what, I will praise God, which leads me to this. Can you think of a scenario that the world, and in particular Melbourne, has faced in the last two years that has given us every opportunity to be consecrated in our demeanor and in our countenance. That great faith is not proclaiming, we got the power to get out of all this, Great faith is proclaiming hope flowing in the middle of the suffering to say, hey, listen, if you want to look not not to some magic formula to get out of everything, but if you want to look to an empowering spirit that allows our hands to stay clean, our heart to stay pure, our taste to stay sweet, this will turn out for my deliverance. And here's the thing. Think about the people who inspire you the most. They're not the people who don't go through anything. Like, if I was to say, hey, I brought a friend of mine tonight. His name's Bill. Bill, come on up. Bill, I want you to tell me your testimony. Quickly, though, quickly. Like, come on up, Bill, and tell your testimony. Bill's like, hello, everybody. My name's Bill. Let me tell you about my life. It's awesome. My marriage is awesome. My children are amazing. My business is booming. And when I think about my past, I got to tell you, folks, I pretty much nailed that, too. We don't wanna know Bill. You wanna know him? You're sorta of happy for him, maybe, but you wanna know Bill. Those people don't inspire you. The people who inspire all of us are not the people who never go through anything, nor is it that they have some magic faith to get out of everything. The people who inspire us the most are the people who go through great trials, great suffering, great stress, and in the middle of that, they somehow keep their hands clean, their heart pure, their taste sweet, they're focused on God, and everything out of their mouth is a blessing instead of a curse. Think about that. Those are the people they make movies about. Which leads me to this question. If it's that inspiring, how do we miss this? Like if those people inspire us, shouldn't we want to be those kind of people? How do we miss this? I think we miss it three ways. Next slide. I think there's three ways to miss your deliverance. One is to generalize the particular. So to generalize the particular means you take something specific that happened and then you generalize it to everybody. So if I get a thousand emails saying we love that thanks for giving us that thought and then I get one email from some nameless faceless person criticizing me and then I can't get that out of my head and instead of focusing on the thousand people I focus on the one negative divisive criticizer right and then I go I look at that and I go oh everybody must feel this way no no That one person feels that way. Let's call that what it is. Or you invite someone to church, you say, Would you like to come to church with me? And they're like, No way, no way, no. Never go to church, ever. Why? Church hurts people. Church hurts people. What do you mean, church hurts people? I have a friend down the road that feeds 1,500 um, poor people a week. What do you mean? They're not hurting. People. What are you talking about? Oh, I didn't mean them. I mean, I went to church once and there was this lady on the third row and she gossiped about me, right? Yeah, okay, let's call that what it is. That one lady at one moment at one time hurts you, but that doesn't mean the whole church hurts people. Or you sometimes see people who've gone through trauma in relationships, you know? Like like you, you talking to some lady whose husband left her and he cheated, right? And she's like, oh, all men, all men cheat. All men? All of us? Every one of us cheat. Can you imagine living life where you take your trauma and then you generalize that to every single person? That'll cost us clean hands, pure heart, and sweet taste. Let's call that what it is. One dude cheated on you, and it was painful and, in fact, traumatic and actually devastating. And let's call that what it is, but that doesn't mean everybody does, right? So we generalize the particular. The second thing that costs us our deliverance is we freeze the present. So to freeze the present is the idea... That what we're going through right now will never end. And and look, I get it. Like, there's times in the pandemic, particularly in Melbourne, where you thought, we're never going outside, ever. (laughs) And I get it. Listen, I want to acknowledge how horrible it was here, okay? I do. It was terrible. And then there's a temptation to go, this will never end. And let's just be honest. It's just in us to freeze the present. Like, heck, if, if, even if we get a bad enough cold, we're thinking, I'll never breathe again. <laughs> That's me done, right? Or, or heartbreak. Heartbreak's a good example. Like, do you remember, for me, it's, it's a girl, right? You you remember the first girl or your first breakup? Remember the first girl that broke up with you? Yeah, you do. Of course you do, right? Because it's really, really devastating, right? I remember remember the first girl that broke up with me. Absolutely. Can't forget that. And it was mutual. And don't you think anything less of it? Like, we had a talk and we decided together, right, that this wasn't working. And so we broke up mutually, right? But here's the thing. She seemed fine. I was all devastated, you know? I was like, oh, God. Oh, God. I love her so much. I'll never find anybody. Right? I was 14. (laughs) My dad picks me up from school, I get in the car and I'm pouting, all upset and depressed. My dad said, hey, what's the matter with you? And if you ever parented a teenager, what did I say, nothing, (laughs) nothing. My dad said, nothing, really? Then tell your face that, because here's the thing, right? I can't see your heart, but I can see your face. And if your face is any indication of what's going on in your heart, then there's something wrong. So if there's nothing really wrong, that means your face is broken. So fix your flipping face. <laughs> we get home, I'm still pouting. An hour later, dad's had enough. Comes in my room. He's like, hey, you got to tell me or not? I was like, dad, she broke up with me. It was mutual. <laughs> I hurt so bad. My dad looked at me and said, Boy, are you crying over a girl? It's like, yeah, dad, this pain will never leave. My dad said, I'll be right back. He leaves, comes back with the smallest potted plant you can imagine, like something I could hold easily, like this little green sprig, you know? I've always been a pretty good communicator. I could see where this was going, you know. Hey, new beginnings, fresh start, second chances, death lead. New life bursting forth out of the ground. I could see the whole thing right there in front of me. Not my dad. My dad's like, here's the lesson, boy. If you're going to cry over a girl, at least cry in the plant so your tears will do something. God, you're embarrassing. And you know he was right, three weeks later, new girl, forget her, right, right? It cost us clean hands, pure heart, and sweet taste when we freeze the present, or when we generalize particular, number three, when we lose the plot. And honestly, if we generalize the particular and freeze the present, there's no other option but to lose the plot. If it's always gonna be this way and it's everywhere at all times and it's never gonna get any better ever, 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 we'll lose the plot. But those people who live like that don't inspire us. And if we live like that, we won't be inspiring anybody else. Part of consecration is being surrendered to what God is up to in me, what God's up to in you, what God's up to in them. And sometimes Christianity is not a system of thought that gives no place to suffering. Christianity actually says suffering has a voice. It just never gets the last word because of resurrection. And that is fundamentally different. Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I'm making a commitment to you. Clean hands, pure heart, sweet taste. Now, look, What does he say? Next slide. He says, through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus. Now, that's an odd sentence, isn't it? You would expect someone being tortured by the Romans to go, God's given me an extra portion of grace here. But he doesn't. He does, but he adds, he says, it's your prayers in the provision of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. And here's here's what happens, right? For church people like me and you, fully devoted followers of Jesus, oftentimes what we do, is we absolve ourselves from the responsibility of being present with someone in their pain because we know when we look at the situation, there's nothing we could do to fix it. But what if we weren't called to fix every single situation, but we were called to give the gift of our presence and our hope in the middle of it so that they're not going through it alone? Like, we see these cop-outs all the time. You know, some single, look, I'm single and I'm very happy, okay? Very, right? But some people, their singleness really bothers them. Right? And so they come and they say, would you pray for me? I'm just really stressed. You know, like this singleness really bothers me. And we're like, and then we have these quippy, cliched one-liners as if that helps. Like, you're not alone. You've got Jesus. And the single person is like, what are you talking about? Jesus doesn't cuddle. What are you talking about? Right? But what if we weren't called to fix that problem? Rather, we were called to be present with the person in the problem to share hope. Right? That church is not going to be able to get Paul out of prison, not unless he denies Jesus. But he says, even though you can't do anything to get me out of this, I know that you're sharing hope, your prayers. I'm not in this alone. And the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. That part of consecration is being committed to be present with people in their pain without feeling the pressure of having to solve everything. Let's put some more language around this. Next slide. What does this teach us about community? Togetherness, identifying. Sometimes people look, if someone has an unfixable problem, they know you're powerless to fix it. They just want to know you're in it with them and that you'll do all you can do, which most of the time is pray, share hope. Let me share you a story about a hero of mine named Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand is is a hero of mine. If you're over the age of 40, you're probably like, "Yeah, I know who that is." I think if you're under the age of 40, you're like, "Who's that?" Right? Richard Wormbrand was the father of the church in Romania. Um, I've had the privilege of preaching in Tamiyashwara, where uh, Richard Wormbrand's church is. It's three stories tall. It's packed 40 minutes before church um, with a prayer meeting. Um, they were not free to worship, even as late as the 80s. Um, I, I was blown away when I was there. I was, I, was, I was there, and during the prayer meeting, they started singing something that was a really old hymn. But on the right, there was a row of octogenarian women. I'm talking about these women were old. I mean, if they weren't 88, they need to eat more broccoli, okay? They were really, really old. And there was a row, not not one lonely one, neither. I'm talking about a row of them. And in the song service, they were in a power rock stance, arching their backs, screaming the song at the sky. And not one weird one. I'm talking about the whole row. So I said to my guide, my translator, I said, what's the deal with that? He said, what? I said, that's eight 80-year-old women singing. And I ain't ain't singing like any 80-year-old I've ever seen. They're in an Eddie Van Halen power rock stance, Back arch, screaming the song at the sky. And my guide said, oh, you're so American. <laughs> he said, Americans complain about the song choice. Romanians just celebrate the fact they can sing. He said, there was a day in their life it was illegal to sing. So now that they can sing, they're going to sing. <sighs> Richard wormbrand's the reason for that. But you don't win that kind of freedom... Without torture. Richard Wormbrand was tortured for Christ. For years. The communist regime there wanted to shut him down. And so part of his torture was just unbelievable. When I met him, he was in a wheelchair. And his feet were up. And his feet were size 22. Even though they were only meant to be size 10. Part of it was because they would strap his feet down and take bamboo sticks. And beat the bottoms of his feet. And his feet never recovered. Part of his torture was they would strip his wife naked and throw her in ice baths. And stand her up naked, shivering, and say, you'll deny Christ now. And she says, please don't deny Christ. Tell us where the underground churches are, and they never would. I, I want a thing. I, I got to sit with him with only a group of 10 of us. And so I, I'll never forget, as long as I live, it's imprinted in my brain permanently. And we asked him, we said, Richard, how did you, how did you treat the torturers? Like the people coming in, just torturing you. He said, oh, that's easy. He said, we, we always had the same answer to them when they were done torturing us. We would say, we love you, Jesus loves you. We forgive you, Jesus forgives you. Go home tonight knowing there's nothing between you and God. We love you, Jesus loves you. We forgive you, Jesus forgives you. Go home tonight knowing there's nothing between you and God. Which is a whole lot better than, I'm going to call down fire from heaven and destroy you. Second question we asked him was, we said, how'd you get through it? Here's what I expected. I expected him to say, when you're going through stuff like that, God gives you a special grace and it's just amazing, right? And he did. He said that, but he said, that's not it. He said, occasionally the torturers would get so moved with us being nice to them that they would accept Christ. And he said, we always loved it when they accepted Christ, not just because of their acceptance of Christ, but because the next time they were on the torture roster, we got to escape the torture. So what they would do is they'd beat the wall and we'd scream and put on a play. And it was just a really cool thing. He said, and part of the torture was them telling us, um, we've already found everybody, it's not working, you're in here by yourself, they're living their life, and that was torture. He said, but sometimes those soldiers that accepted Christ would smuggle in notes from the church, and those notes from the church would say something like this, Richard, you're in there, and we're out here, but keep going, we're with you, you are not alone, and it is working, we are sharing our hope with you, Richard, you keep going. And he said, it was the spirit of Jesus, but it was also knowing that I was not alone. Which leads me to all kinds of questions about how we can play a part in other people's deliverance. What does that mean? It means I should be able to look at you and you and you and say, your deliverance matters to me. And what does that mean? It means your clean hand, your pure heart, and your sweet taste matters. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. Like, if your only thought right now is, I agree with you, you've missed the point. If your, other th- if your only other thought is, is, I hate this, I disagree with you, you've also missed the point. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with for application. The best way to do that is with questions. Let's look at this. Next slide. What has happened to us that we need to resolve will turn out for our deliverance? Let's take a second, cancel the white noise of the week, and underneath your breath, I want you to name it. My 26-year-old is off the rails. I've done all I can do. This will turn out for my deliverance. No matter what happens there, clean hands, pure heart, sweet taste. Hey, I'm waiting on the results of a medical test. I don't know what that test might say, but clean hands, pure heart, sweet taste. This will turn out for my deliverance. Hey, I'm. Hey, my biggest client just had a meeting with a competitor and I've done all I can do in, in being integrous, but this will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance. Part of consecration is commitment to clean hands, pure heart, sweet taste. Let's say it this way. Can we resolve to have clean hands, pure heart, and great taste? Let's say it this way. Are, are we tempted anywhere to lose the plot? Just throw in the towel, give up, make matters worse. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Is there any place where we've frozen the present? Things don't tend to freeze where they are. They tend to, they're seasons. We get out of this stuff is there any place where we've generalized the particular i think an easy thing for tonight is is there any place do you need prayer and i don't mean the old oh we'll remember you in our prayers and I can keep that stuff i'm talking about i'm talking about this and we're not mind readers you got to come up and say something right but if you said if you said hey man i'm running a little low on hope and you look like you have a lot of it can i borrow some of your hope would you share your hope with me? I'm not asking you to solve the problem. I'm just asking you to pray for me and share hope. They'll let you. Ask someone if you could borrow their hope. They'll let you. And if they won't, steal it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that. Let's say it this way, next slide. This will turn out for my deliverance. Where do we need to say it until we feel it? So I want you to stand with me. Um, I decided to end the sermon this way. Um, instead of having an altar call and all of that, I, I, I think if you were paying attention at all, every person can find themselves somewhere in this sermon. I don't think that's a problem is identification. And so one, things, one of the things I appreciate um, about the Pentecostal tradition is that we're okay with confession. And part of our spiritual practice is confessing truth until it gets down in us. Okay? And so I'm gonna lead you through a spiritual practice of confession. And I promise you I won't hurt you. And if you're uncomfortable, please don't do it. But because I, I want us, I want us to dig deep down into us, and I want us to move in the spirit. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something that that in my tradition we call it moving in the spirit. And I'm not gonna be weird or anything about that. I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to settle over us now. The compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. Right where you are, I want you to name the thing, name the pain, name the struggle, name the worry, name the addiction, name the rejection, whatever it is, I want you to name it. And I'm going to lead us, each of these confessions, we're going to say three times, so the first time is for our head, so we'll just hear it, second time is for our heart, and the third time is all the way for our gut, our spirit person. The first confession is this. With some go Melbourne gusto, it sounds like this. This will turn out for my deliverance. Let's try that together. Ready? Go. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, let's say that again for our heart. Go. This will turn out for my deliverance. And one more time for our spirit. Go. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, let's say a second confession. It goes like this. My hands will stay clean. Ready, go. My hands will stay clean. And one more time, down for your heart. My hands will stay clean. And now one more time for your spirit. My hands will stay clean. This third confession is this. My heart will stay pure. Go. My heart will stay pure. And a second time, my heart will stay pure. And a third time, my heart will stay pure. the the next confession is this, my taste will stay sweet. Go. My taste will stay sweet. A second time, my taste will stay sweet. And a third time for your spirit, my taste will stay sweet, for this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. For this will turn out for my deliverance. For this will turn out for my deliverance despite what the medical test might or might not say if it's positive praise god if it's negative this will turn out for my deliverance the the client that's thinking about leaving your business if they do if they don't praise god if they if they do this will turn out for my Deliverance that worry you have about that pain on the right side of your back You got to go get that check this week, and you're worried about it. This will turn out for my Deliverance that job interview you got you really desperately need this you really do because there's 40 people trying to get the rental property you're trying to get and you just need a place to live and you need a job to qualify for the thing this will turn out for my Deliverance, clean hands, pure heart, sweet taste, for this will turn out for my deliverance. May the world, my brothers and sisters, may Jesus get bigger, the cross work better, the resurrection be central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller. May the world, when they look at our faith and our consecration, may they say, right or wrong, I don't know, but I do know this. Those people are saying yes every day to the gift of God's breath, fully consecrated in a loving relationship. And... Good times, bad times, in in the struggle, in the pain, and in the victory, they have clean hands, pure hearts, and sweet taste. For this will turn out for my deliverance. I declare that over this place with as much unction as I can. Lord, would you endue us with spiritual power, a special grace of the Spirit of God that gives us the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. May May our families, our neighbors, our co workers, our jobs, our communities, and our country, may they look at the church of Jesus Christ and go, clean hands, pure hearts, sweet taste, for this will turn out for my deliverance. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for being a part of your night. I do hope Jesus got bigger for you tonight and the scriptures got bigger, the cross worked better, and the resurrection is central. May we all live with a commitment of consecration. What does that mean? To be consecrated to God is to live for others. To be consecrated to God is saying yes to the gift of the holy, the gift of God's breath today. To to be consecrated to God is to live in consensual, loving relationship with Him. And to be consecrated to God is committing our countenance to clean hands, pure hearts, sweet taste, for this will turn out for my deliverance. Grace and peace, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for this message today.